Today, Palm Sunday, we actually begin the journey uh, into Holy Week. And this is the entrance into Holy Week. And, and it's actually a journey that we must take if we want to enter into the celebration of the resurrection next Sunday. The temptation is to go from the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, just hop over everything and go right into his triumphal rising from the grave. And in that, we know that there is just this life of triumph that we have as those who follow him. This is actually why we read the Passion on Palm Sunday. I don't know if it strikes you as odd, but we start off saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and, and we're, that, that crowds were praising him, and then we move into his passion and into his death. And that is because that is the road we must travel if we are to celebrate more fully the joy of resurrection. There are no shortcuts. We cannot fully worship him as king if we don't walk into the place of understanding and knowing the betrayal and the cross. So we have in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus sends two of his disciples um, to go into Jerusalem and to get a, 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 a foal, a donkey, and the, and the foal of a donkey. And Jesus, in doing this, he is doing this intentionally to fulfill the prophecy that was 500 years earlier by Zechariah, which Matthew quotes, but Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it's a little more full. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Jesus is very intentionally entering Jerusalem as the king. He's not coming on a war horse. He's not coming with an army and a sword and, and, and his own armor. But he is coming to bring victory. You can, you can translate that righteous and bringing victory. But his victory does not come from overthrowing those who are opposed to him. His victory comes from dying for them. So we have in verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and, and spread them on the road. Uh, this is the, the picture of, of, you can think of it as, um, as the red carpet, the putting out the red carpet. It's a thing of honor. It was also though meant to be uh, something that was to keep the dust off of the, the king who was coming in because the roads were dirty and dusty. But why do we carry the palms? I mean, why don't we just throw them down on the ground when we come in, if we are fully taking that journey? But we're also shaped by what we see in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 8 and 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So we are part of that great multitude. We are part of that multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation that have been rescued, have been given the righteousness of God. That is the picture of, of the white robes. What, what is fascinating when you read the accounts of Jesus and his triumphal entry is that they all make the point of where this journey starts. So we see in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent in the two disciples. The Mount of Olives you find numerous times in Scripture. The first place that you find it is in 2 Samuel chapter 30, and this is when uh, King David is betrayed by his son Absalom. 
His son Absalom who comes to overthrow him and take his kingship upon himself. And, and you find in verse 15 of 2 Samuel chapter 30, it says that, that David ascends the Mount of Olives weeping with every step because his son had betrayed him. Mount of Olives is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. We see Jesus weeping with that same betrayal. We see him betrayed with a kiss by one of his own. You find also in Ezekiel chapter 10, you find this picture that Ezekiel gets of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, departing from the temple. And then you find in chapter 11 and verse 23, these words, the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain to the east of it. So you see the glory of the Lord, it leaves the Holy of Holies and it leaves the temple and then it actually leaves the city of Jerusalem and it goes to the mountain to the east, which is the Mount of Olives. Uh, this was a picture of God's judgment, that God's glory was leaving his people because they were a rebellious nation. And they refused to walk in his ways. Yet even in that picture that Ezekiel gets of God's glory leaving the people of God, moving out of Jerusalem, there still is a hope that is woven in that. Because he says in verse 19, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I'll remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people, and I will be their God. In other words, the glory is going to return. I will move out their hearts of stone. I'll give them hearts of flesh. My spirit will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And on this day, on Palm Sunday, we see the glory of God returning to Jerusalem. From the place where it had left, we see the glory of God returning into Jerusalem. And then you find after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, you have the ascension. And, and the ascension, it takes place on the Mount of Olives. In the ascension, you have the work of the cross being completed. So if you look in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, it was a day that the sins of the people were atoned for. There was the sacrifice, and the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and he'd sprinkle it on the high altar. But the, the job wasn't complete until the high priest took the blood of the sacrifice and went into the Holy of Holies. And he sprinkled the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. And that is what completed the sacrifice. One man going into the Holy Holy of Holies on behalf of the people and offering that sacrifice. And if he came out alive, that meant that sacrifice was accepted. This is the same language that you find in Hebrews chapter 9. That Jesus is our high priest and he takes the blood of the sacrifice, he takes his own blood into the heavenly Holy of Holies. And in that, he actually completes the work of sacrifice that was on the cross. And in that, then, he is able to sit down at the right hand of the Father, that place of ruling and authority, but also seated because the work has been completed. So you see, his ascension is also his exaltation. It's also his coronation as king. And this is why we have in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name 
I don't know if you've ever noticed, but Philippians chapter 2, it goes from the crucifixion right to the ascension. Because this is where the work of sacrifice was completed, and this is where Jesus was crowned as the king. And Jesus began his triumphal entry in the very place that he would ascend to heaven, completing the work of sacrifice, and the place that he would be exalted as the king, because his sacrifice and his kingship, they cannot be separated. You find in Zechariah chapter 14, you find the prophecy of what will be on the day of the Lord, on the the final day, uh, when the Lord returns to set all things right. And that day of the Lord, uh, that return is said to take place on the Mount of Olives. Listen to verse 4. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split into two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain going north and half moving south. It is this picture that that when he returns, he will stand on the Mount of Olives. And when he stands, the Mount of Olives will split, and it forms a great valley. And in the next verse, it says that those who were held captive in Jerusalem, fallen Jerusalem, it's a picture of the world, that they will flee their captivity through that valley. And the same road that we take for our deliverance is the same road that God and his angel armies come in to take captivity captive. It is this glorious picture of us being set free, uh, that there is a triumph over all of evil. This is why Zechariah goes on to describe just sort of the hope and the glory of what will be when everything is set right, where there is a return to paradise, where there is no more darkness. We have the river of life flowing through, and the Lord is king over all things. The day when evil and sin and sorrow are done away with. We have this picture of the kingdom. And what we know in that is is that actually this is where we belong. This is home. This is the kingdom that he has prepared for us. So this is why when you have in the triumphal entry, the people are quoting Psalm 118. When they say, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was a messianic psalm. They knew that this psalm was about the Messiah King. And so they were proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah King. They were praising him as their Messiah. And it is not just that they were thinking, oh, here's the guy that can deliver us from this political oppression of Rome. That is, that, is, that is treating them poorly. It's not that they were just looking for this deliverance from political oppression of Rome. They were longing for the messianic kingdom. They were longing for the Messiah to come, where they would then experience the life of the kingdom, the life and healing and prosperity and wholeness and holiness and joy and blessing of the kingdom of God being established. The people of God were, uh, the people who were there who were singing the praises of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, they were singing those praises rooted in knowing their own need. They knew that, that they needed to be set free, that they wanted and they longed for an end of suffering. And here was the Messiah who could do this. 
that he could bring an end to our suffering, that he is the one that can end the the pain in our hearts from loneliness and fear and loss, that he is the one that could deal with the suffering of our bodies from sickness and disease, that he is the one that could could cure the soul sickness of our hearts separated from God and the places we are bound in sin and we try to do right but we, we fall again and again. They were shouting praise, they were rejoicing because they were crying for healing and relief. That was the longing. They were looking for one who could actually come and answer the deepest longings of their hearts. And by the end of the week, it looked like all that hope was lost. We can't jump from the triumphal entry to the triumph of the resurrection, his his victory over evil and death and sin without knowing that hopelessness that they felt. Because it is in that hopelessness that we begin to recognize um, that it is hopeless without him. That I don't have an ability to make things right. I can't make my own life right. I can't make your life right. I can't make anything right in this world. That actually I am powerless and I am dependent and apart from God, it is hopeless. So we can't move to the resurrection without knowing the hopelessness of what life would be without God. We can't move to the resurrection without knowing that the crucifixion, no matter how brutal it was, is not what killed Jesus. People lasted on the cross for days. It was the weight of God's wrath, the punishment of all the sins of all the people of all time that fell on him that killed him. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians 5 as the offense of the cross. Because at the cross we see that we are more sinful than we ever imagined. I don't know about you, but we we try to go through our lives and we think that I'm basically a good person, I'm basically living a good life. And and we we begin to live our lives as if there's a sliding scale of righteousness. And, And so we try to find our place on that scale of righteousness, and we tend to find it by looking at other people, right? And so we say, well, I may not be perfect, um, but I'm better than Steve, right? So, so I'm here, and, and maybe I'm not as good as Lindsay, so we find our place where, uh, by looking at other people and how we think they are righteous and how good they are, how bad they are. And, and then we actually we begin to look at it saying, now I can move my way up this scale. If I go to church, if I pray every day, if I, if I vote right, if I don't yell at my kids, then, then I can move my way up and be more righteous. And all we are doing in that is that we are trying to define what are acceptable parameters for sin. What are the sins that are okay for me to engage in? What are the acceptable parameters of sin? Because the offense of the cross is that there is no sliding scale. That all of our efforts actually get us nowhere. That we can't move up that at all. Because there is no sliding scale. That that we are born separated from God. That we are those who have fallen far from His glory. And we can't rescue ourselves. We have no ability to move up. And, and our efforts actually accomplish nothing for us. In fact, what the cross shows us is that our condition is so bad, it takes something catastrophic to rescue us. 
that our condition is so bad that, that the solution to rescue us is actually a catastrophic solution. We need to be rescued. That there is nothing we can do to move from being unrighteous to righteous. Either we are unrighteous or God has rescued us and we have the righteousness of Jesus given to us. It's not based on our efforts. It's not based on our ability to move up and, and slowly get better. If we want to be based on our efforts, the, the standard is really simple. You, you can memorize this. Never sin, never want to. If you can say, I've never sinned, and I've never even wanted to sin, then you can actually say, yeah, I can stand in my own righteousness. We don't have the ability to rescue ourselves. This is, this is the offense of the cross, that we begin to see how deeply fallen we are, how we aren't just pretty good people living pretty good lives. And, and I... I I might not be perfect, but I didn't kill anybody today. There are people who are much worse than I am. There are people who are better than I am. And what you find is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that we have no ability to look down on anyone because we need desperately to be rescued. This is why when we see the cross, we also see because of our sin that what we deserve from God, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, is, is actually nothing but judgment. The wrath of God against our sin. If there were no judgment, if there were no wrath of God, then Jesus' death on the cross is unnecessary. And it is just a joke. If there is no wrath of God to be rescued from, then there is no need for a rescuer. If there is no judgment against sin, then we are actually never free from sin in our lives or in this world. See, at the cross we see that, that we are more fallen than we ever imagined and that actually our fallenness is so deep that there's nothing that we can do uh, to rescue ourselves. But also at the cross we see the full wrath of God poured out against all the sins of all the people of all time so that when we know that when He rescues us, when we are united in Christ, that we have already undergone that wrath. That when we have been forgiven of our sins, all of our sins have been forgiven. Past sins, present sins, sins you haven't even thought of yet, have been paid for by the blood of Jesus. This is why Paul can say, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because condemnation fell already on him for us. So not only do we see that we are more sinful than we ever imagined, we see that we are more loved than we ever could have hoped for. This is why uh, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, What great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. It is this journey that enables us to know how deeply He loves us. It is recognizing and knowing our need for Him that actually also gives us the ability to receive His delight in us. Palm Sunday is an odd day because we hear 
um, the words being cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And then we also hear the words, crucify him. Jerusalem was filling up because of the Passover. Uh, the Jewish people who had spread throughout the world, they would all come back for the major feasts. And, and it is not necessarily so that, that those who shouted crucify him were those who just days before had shouted Hosanna to the son of David. It, it might not be. It is not just that, that we picture this and look at, look how fickle we are, though we are. It is not necessarily that, that this is something pointing out how, how quickly we, we move from one side to the other. But it is a picture of the fullness of who we are as those who have been shaped by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a picture of who we are as those who bear the image of God, but that image of God has been corrupted by sin. It's a picture of us who, who hunger for rescue, and yet we want it on our own terms. That we, we want the king, but we want to maintain our own kingdoms. See, the establishment of his kingdom is the end of our kingdoms. The kingdom of God is not a federation of all of our smaller kingdoms. It's just that picture that we have on this day that he comes in as the king and he does not bargain and he does not negotiate. The king has come. But you find in verse 10, it says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The, the word stirred is, is really too tame. Uh, the, the word is shaken. Uh, maybe you could think they were in an uproar. Uh, it carries actually a sense of violence in it. And it's not just, oh, who is this? I mean, they are shaken. They are stirred. They are, they are upset. And what you find is that Jesus does nothing to calm that down. What is the first thing that he does? He goes into the temple and throws the money lenders out and turns over the tables. We see in one of the Gospels that, that he makes a whip out of cords and he, he beats them out of the temple because zeal for God's house consumed him. He did nothing to calm that. So what this day shows is that the king has come. He does not negotiate he leaves no space for bargaining. We do not have the ability to justify or defend ourselves. All we can do is surrender. He comes to shake. And that is actually the glory of his work. Because he comes to undo all that was done by our rebellion. He comes to set right all that was set wrong by our rebellion against him in Genesis chapter 3. And this actually is, is, begins to be a picture of what we're going to see at confirmation. Because what you find is that he comes to undo what was done by our rebellion. Which means that, that when we sinned, we stepped out of his glory. That we stepped out of the purposes that he had for us to be his image, to be his 
his presence in the world. And the image of God becomes corrupted by sin. And when he rescues us, there is a restoration of the image of God. And then there is a restoration of the call to be his glory and his presence in this world. This is what the king does. That he comes in and he brings rescue and he brings restoration. And he is the one that then puts us in the place where we can experience what it is to be the children of God that he delights in. See, this week shows us that he is the king who must be betrayed and must be killed to claim his kingdom, to claim his glory, and to claim his people. Our betrayal cannot overcome his grace and his power. In fact, he uses our betrayal to establish his kingdom. This is the journey that we make this week. We can't celebrate our rescue if we don't actually know that we need to be rescued. The good news does not begin until we see how far we have fallen. And this is why this week is important. Uh, because uh, it moves us beyond uh, a hypothetical understanding that we're sinners. We all sort of know, yeah, I know I sin. I all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And we have a hypothetical understanding. Yeah, we're sinners. I understand that. But is it meant to be a week that walks us deeper into actually looking at our actual sins? That we are the ones who betrayed. And the reality is that the gospel gives us the spaciousness to actually look and confess our sins because my standing with him doesn't depend on me getting it all right. It depends on what he's done for me. Therefore, there is a freedom, there is a joy that comes when we can look at the things that we have done, the ways that we have sinned, the ways we continue to rebel and confess and ask the Lord to bring his healing and his forgiveness. This is a necessary journey. Hypothetical sins means we have a hypothetical Savior should we hypothetically need one. There is the necessity of actually knowing how deeply we need to be rescued. This is the week that we come to the cross and we see that we are more sinful than we have imagined and we are more loved than we ever could have hoped. This is the week that we walk with Jesus, that we would surrender to the King, that we would abandon all of our pretenses, that we're basically good people living basically good lives. And we would see and receive His grace and His love and His rescue and stand in this world as the light of the world, those who bring the glory of the gospel in everything that we do. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you set your face to Jerusalem, that you took this journey to rescue us, that you are the king. The king has come, and we surrender to your kingship. Give us the courage to walk with you this week. That we would know our sin and our need. And that we would know how much deeper is your grace and your restoration and your love. That you would lift us to a joyful celebration. 
of what you have done for us because we know the depth of our rescue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.